Welcome to the Gut Podcast. I'm Mary McLean, Senior Lecturer and Consultant in Gastroenterology at the University of Aberdeen, Scotland, UK. And in my capacity as Education Editor, I'm hosting this podcast today. This month, we're discussing the Editor's Choice Manuscript from the April 2016 issue of Gut. And this is a recent advances in clinical practice paper entitled GLP-1-based therapies, clinical implications for gastroenterologists. And this is presented by Dr. Mark Smits, who's an MD who currently studies the GI effects of GLP-1, and his colleagues from the Diabetes Centre VU University Medical Centre in Amsterdam, and Dr. Juna Cahan, gastroenterologist from the Erasmus University Medical Centre, Rotterdam, and they're both based in the Netherlands. So I'm delighted to welcome both Dr. Smits and Dr. Cahan here today for the podcast. Welcome. So your review focuses on glucagon-like peptide 1 or GLP-1-based therapies with discussion on both the potential clinical applications in GI disease and GI implications of their use. So firstly, let's talk about the basics of GLP-1 hormone in terms of physiology and mechanism. So what is GLP-1? Um, where is it secreted? What's the cellular source? And, and how does it signal? So my name is Gina Cahen. And glucagon-like peptide 1 is a native hormone that's released by intestinal L cells in response to food. And this can be any nutrient, carbohydrates, proteins, lipids, even artificial sweeteners. And as the name suggests, it shares a precursor with glucagon. An alternate splicing of proglucagon leads to the production of glucagon by pancreatic alpha cells and GLP-1 by L cells. And these specialized cells are located throughout the small intestine, but mainly in the distal ileum. And apart from this direct stimulus by food, a neuronal feed-forward loop is expected as GLP-1 levels start to rise already minutes after the meal, well before the arrival of nutrients to the ileum. And from there, once it's in the portal circulation, GLP-1 has a very short half-life of less than two minutes due to the rapid degradation by the enzyme D-peptidyl-peptidase 4, or DPP4. And as a result, only 10 to 15% of the GLP-1 enters the systemic circulation. And here, it binds to the so-called GLP-1 receptor, which is present in numerous organs. So, all in all, GLP-1 appears and disappears rapidly and affects organs throughout the body. So what are the downstream mechanisms of action of this hormone in health or normal homeostasis? Okay, I'm going to answer this question. This is Mark Smith. And this used to be quite a simple answer. Um, GLP-1 stimulates insulin secretion. However, over the years, there have been many different actions of GLP-1 which have been discovered. And GLP-1 not only affects the endocrine pancreas, but also many gastrointestinal um, organs, cardiovascular system kidneys, and it even affects several aspects of the brain. But for today, I think two aspects of GLP-1 are quite interesting. First, and we think this is the main action, is that GLP-1 lowers blood glucose levels, and it does so by inducing glucose-dependent stimulation of insulin secretion, while at the same time it reduces glucagon secretion. As such, it is involved in the so-called incretin effect. And this incretin phenomenon basically describes the process where insulin release is greater after oral glucose intake than after you administer the same dose of glucose intravenously. So some sort of well, gastrointestinal factor seems to be involved, which we call the incretin effect. And we now know that GLP-1 is one of those incretin hormones. 
Additionally, we know that GLP-1 is a so-called enterogastrone, or uh, a hormonal mediator of the ileal break phenomenon. And the ileal break mechanism basically guards the distal intestines from caloric overload, and it does so by reducing uh, gastric emptying, gastric acid secretion, intestinal motility, exocrine pancreatic um, secretion, gallbladder emptying, um, and so forth. So it basically reduces proximal gastrointestinal physiology. And we know that GLP-1 basically affects most of these proximal gastrointestinal processes, so GLP-1 is one of the enterogastrones. And what fascinates me is that the enterogastrone effect from GLP-1 also lowers blood glucose levels, so GLP-1 lowers blood glucose by being an incretin and by being an enterogastrone. And there's even some evidence, and some authors actually suggest, that the enterogastrone effect of GLP-1 might outweigh its role in glucose homeostasis. Okay. Given these functions, drugs have been developed to augment GLP-1 responses for metabolic disease, namely diabetes. So tell us more about this and the types of GLP-1-directed medications that are available. GLP-1-directed or incretin-based drugs are an attractive option for the treatment of type 2 diabetes because their benefits extend beyond glucose control. They include positive effects on satiety, weight, blood pressure, cholesterol levels, and all this without the risk of hypoglycemia. And there are two different kinds of drugs that have been developed. First, incretin mimetics, GLP-1 receptor agonists that bind to the GLP-1 receptor and mimic its action. And second, incretin enhancers, or DPP-4 inhibitors, drugs that inhibit the degrading enzyme DPP-4, thereby prolonging the action of endogeneously produced GLP-1. And it's important to note several important differences between these two drug categories. First, DPP-4 inhibitors are taken orally, while GLP-1 receptor agonists are injected subcutaneously, either daily or in case of long-acting preparations, weekly. And second, GLP-1 receptor agonists increase serum GLP-1 up to 6 to 10 times, so they result in supernatural therapeutic levels and a stronger action. And in contrast, DPP-4 inhibitors prevent degradation and only slightly increase GLP-1 levels. And then finally, while GLP-1 receptor agonists only affect GLP-1, DPP-4 inhibition also prolongs the activity of other hormones that are degraded by DPP-4. So they cause a wider range of actions. So these treatment strategies can impact GI function, and we'll now talk through the potential impacts on each anatomical area of the GI tract in turn. So firstly, can you tell us about the effects on the stomach and duodenum and the clinical implications of this? I think that the gastric effects of GLP-1 are perhaps the most widely known GI effect of these agents. Basically what happens is that GLP-1 inhibits the motility of the stomach, and simultaneously it stimulates the tone of the pyloric muscle. And combined, this leads to a reduction in gastric emptying. We know that the same effect occurs with GLP-1 receptor agonists. And I think there's one important difference between short and long-acting agents which needs to be mentioned. After prolonged intervention, the gastric inhibition still occurs with short-acting agents, but it disappears with long-acting agents. And we are not entirely sure what causes this distinction, but we think that the long-acting agents because of continuous receptor stimulation, that some sort of tachyphylaxis occurs. Quite fascinatingly, DPP-4 inhibitors have no effect on gastric emptying, 
or perhaps a very modest effect. And this is interesting because DPP4 inhibitors increase GLP-1 levels, um, yet they have no effect on gastric emptying. Maybe the GLP-1 levels are not high enough, or maybe just like Juno just introduced, um, it could also be that other peptides, which are normally degraded by DPP-4, are now also increased during DPP-4 inhibition, and they um, counteract the effects of GLP-1. So for the clinical implications, from a diabetologist's point of view, the inhibition of gastric emptying is quite interesting because it also inhibits the postprandial glucose uptake, so it reduces postprandial glucose levels. And this is obviously beneficial for patients with diabetes, both with type 1 or type 2 diabetes. With regards to um, gastrointestinal conditions, there is one particular disorder which can benefit from um, these gastric effects, and that's dumping syndrome. Dumping syndrome is normally caused by rapid um, transit of hyperosmolar fluid, and by reducing gastric emptying, GLP-1 could be beneficial. And this was recently demonstrated in a case series in uh, seven patients who experienced dumping syndrome after gastric bypass surgery, and these subjects received GLP-1 receptor agonist treatment, and they observed a decrease in dumping symptoms. However, this is just a case series, and I think that we need more studies, um, controlled trials, to see whether this is um, whether this is a real effect. There's also a downside to the gastric effects of GLP-1, and that we know that most patients, or at least a quarter of patients, experience nausea and vomiting when they start the GLP-1 receptor agonist. And it has long been attributed to the effects on gastric inhibition. However, more recent evidence suggests that these effects are not caused by gastric emptying, but more likely by stimulation of certain brain areas. Nevertheless, I think that we should uh, be cautious in prescribing these, uh, these agents in patients with nausea um, at baseline, and also in patients with gastroparesis, where gastric emptying is already very low to absence, because it could very well be that in these patients, um, further inhibition of gastric emptying could lead to more symptoms. So next, let's move on to the small and large intestine, and this might be where listeners are most familiar, given the FDA approval of the LGPR2RA tadouclotide for small bowel syndrome. So can you tell us more about this particular application? Yes. Well, GLP-2 is associated with GLP-1 by the L cells, again uh, by splicing of proglucagon, and it has similar actions to GLP-1. It inhibits gastric emptying and secretion, and it enhances intestinal absorption. And indeed, subcutaneous glutide is the first long-term medical therapy approved for the treatment of adults with short bowel syndrome, and it leads to a 20% reduction in the need for parental support. And I would not be surprised if in the near future also GLP-1-based drugs will be approved for the treatment of short bowel syndrome. The study showed that the short-acting GLP-1 receptor agonist, exonacide, reduces diarrhea and improves symptoms compared to a placebo. And even more, a study showed that the greatest reduction in small bowel, short bowel symptoms was induced by a combined GLP-1 and GLP-2 infusion. And this may be very promising for the role of DPP-4 inhibitors in this disease, as they increase both GLP-1 and GLP-2 levels. But this, this has not been studied yet. So are there any additional implications and potential uses of GLP-1-directed therapies on the luminal GI tract? Uh, yeah, I think so. There are some 
trials which demonstrate that GLP-1 receptor agonists could also be beneficial for irritable bowel syndrome, or IBS, and especially the constipation predominant type. And to me, this sounded somewhat counterintuitive um, at the beginning, because why would you treat constipation with an agent that reduces intestinal motility? But the crux lies in the pathophysiology of constipation predominant IBS, since constipation is present because of hyperactivity of the circular colon muscles. And GLP-1 reduces this hyperactivity and thereby it somewhat normalizes the whole process. And there has been several placebo-controlled trials, and in these trials, GLP-1 actually improves symptoms, both transit and pain. Um, and these are quite interesting agents with a lot of potential. Moreover, there are several animal studies um, where both GLP-1 and GLP-1 receptor agonists and DPP-4 inhibitors have been shown that um, these agents improve mucosal damage. And this could be in uh, interesting for disorders such as um, chemotherapy-induced mucositis or inflammatory bowel disease. But the problem is that apart from um, encouraging animal studies, we have no clinical studies at this stage. Now, similar to the gastric effects, um, there could also be some downsides to the intestinal effects of GLP-1. And we know, for example, that all of these agents can um, induce both constipation and diarrhea. Well, the constipation, uh, we think, could be explained by a reduction in intestinal motility, but for diarrhea at this day, uh, we still have no explanation. So one of the concerns that has been, has been the potential association of these agents with the development of pancreatitis and pancreatic cancer, and I believe there's conflicting evidence in the literature. So can you tell us more about this? Yes, you're absolutely right. There is a heated debate going on regarding the pancreatic safety of both the GLP-1 receptor agonists and the TP4 inhibitors. And soon after their introduction, GLP-1-based drugs were linked to pancreatitis and pancreatic cancer. And also in patients using these drugs, increased plasma amylase and lipase levels were observed, suggesting subclinical infl inflammation. And this led to numerous studies over the past years. And if we look closer, to the evidence, first, animal studies. Several have demonstrated that GLP-1-based drugs induce pancreatic inflammation, cellular proliferation, and even dysphagia. But on the other side, many studies using different models and doses up to 250 times the human dose did not find any pancreatic risk. And Observational database studies show a similar contradicting pattern. Some found increased risk, but many others did not. And although dedicated studies on pancreatic risks are still lacking at this point, there have been several cardiovascular safety trials, large trials, in which pancreatic effects have also been assessed. And at this point, there's one trial out with, uh, with a GLP-1 receptor agonist and three evaluating DPP-4 inhibitors, and none of these four trials found a significant increase in pancreatitis risk. However, in two of the trials investigating DPP-4 uh, inhibitors, there was a trend observed towards pancreatitis uh, occurrence. And in addition, a meta-analysis of these three DPP-4 trials combined did find a significant increase in pancreatitis. But we have to nuance this finding because the relative risk was 1.8, equating to five extra cases per 10,000 patients, or number needed to harm of almost 2,000 per year. 
So even when DPP-4 inhibitors induce pancreatitis, the absolute risk seems, still seems very low. And recently, the regulatory authorities have reviewed all this available preclinical and clinical evidence, and they concluded that there's no causal association between GLP-1-based therapies and pancreatic adverse events. Yet, I think evidence is still scarce, and the follow-up time of current studies may just be too short for the development of pancreatic cancer. And so final conclusions cannot be made, and in the meantime, we recommend not to use these agents in patients who are at risk either for pancreatitis or pancreatic malignancy. So next, let's consider the applications and potential implications on the liver and biliary tree, and particularly non-alcoholic fatty liver disease is increasing in incidence globally linked to the obesity epidemic, and of course carries significant risk for the development of cirrhosis and complications thereafter. So could GLP-1-directed therapies impact on this particular pathology? Certainly, and I think this is actually one of the most exciting and rapidly developing fields with regards to GLP-1 and GI conditions. I think it started with some promising case reports and some open-label studies, but to date there have been several large placebo-controlled trials which have demonstrated that both GLP-1 receptor agonists and the DPP-4 inhibitors can effectively reduce hepatic steatosis. And in some of the studies, they even observed a decrease in hepatic fat content of over 50%. And this is not really um, surprising, actually, because GLP-1 in vitro and in vivo improves hepatic glucose metabolism, it improves fat metabolism, GLP-1 also reduces body weight, and both uh, drug classes improve insulin sensitivity. So it's not really surprising that GLP-1 and DPP-4 inhibitors reduce hepatic steatosis. There's, however, one study which I want to highlight, and this is the recently published LEAN trial, because in this study, over 50 patients with biopsy-proven NASH, or non-alcoholic steatohepatitis, were included, and both patients with and without diabetes. And patients were treated with a GLP-1 receptor agonist for almost one year, and biopsy, liver biopsy, was taken prior to treatment and after treatment. And as somewhat expected, compared to placebo, the erucleotide, or the GLP-1 receptor agonist, it reduced steatosis, but more interestingly, it also reduced inflammation and NASH. And if we look at the, at the, the complications of NAFLD, uh, such as cirrhosis and mortality, these most of the times occur in those patients with NASH. So, yeah, I think that the uh, GLP-1-based therapies are actually uh, quite interesting for the treatment of NAFLD and NASH. So are there other potential liver and biliary tree applications to consider? That is too soon to tell, I think. There are only few studies on biliary physiology, and in a study in healthy volunteers, the GLP-1 agonist exonatitude reduced gallbladder emptying, and also DPP-4-deficient mice, so with high GLP-1 levels, had lower bioacid production and increased secretion as compared to wild-type mice. Combined, these actions could hypothetically prevent secondary biliary cirrhosis in patients with cholangiopathies. However, this remains to be proven. And in contrast, the combination of reduced gallbladder motility and bioacid production may induce gallstone formation. And this hypothesis is supported actually by several studies that found use of the GLP-1 receptor agonist lyraglutide and several DPP-4 inhibitors to be associated with increased presence of bowel stones. 
However, at this time, it remains unknown whether long-term treatment with GLP-1-based therapies affects biliary motility or metabolism. In fact, we are currently performing a mechanistic study to assess these effects. So finally, it's clear that these drugs may be beneficial in a wide range of GI pathologies. So looking forward, what do you think is required before we see these drugs emerging into mainstream uh, GI clinical practice? Uh, uh, I think for diabetes management, these agents are already in mainstream clinical practice. But as you indicate, for outside of diabetes, there's still much ground to gain. Um, quite interestingly, uh, recently the GLP-1 receptor agonist liraglutide was approved for weight loss in patients without diabetes. And I think this is a very important first step because it confirms that these agents can be used safely, um, so basically without the risk of hypoglycemia, in the patient uh, in population without diabetes. And this is quite interesting because uh, many of the uh, GI conditions we discussed today, such as NAFLD or short bowel syndrome, um, irritable bowel syndrome, most of the patients do not have diabetes. So it is very good to know that we can use um, these agents um, without the risk of hyperglycemia in a population without diabetes. Nevertheless, I think that we do not have evidence enough, uh, not strong enough evidence at this point to start prescribing these agents for indications other than weight loss or diabetes. And to go forward, um, I guess we need large-scale randomized clinical trials with obviously adequate control groups. Um, and if it was up to me, I would start with the conditions in which efficacy has already been demonstrated, again, for the short bowel syndrome and irritable bowel syndrome, whereas for the other conditions, uh, such as IBD or Dumping syndrome, we might need to start with small proof-of-concept studies first. And finally, I, I think this applies to the fields of both gastroenterology and diabetology. It would be of very great convenience for patients if the GLP-1 receptor agonist could be administered without the need of subcutaneous injection. And for what I understand, um, oral agents and inhalation drugs are currently being developed. So that brings us to the end of today's podcast. I'd like to thank Dr. Mark Smith and Dr. Gina Cahan for joining me today. Thank you very much. You're very welcome. You're welcome.